Hello and welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan, and in this program, we all discover jazz, old and new, together by listening to a wide array of selections, exploring different jazz styles and topics related to jazz, we'll learn more about what it is, what it isn't, how it's developed, and what we can listen for to enhance our experience. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. Today I want to talk about how people, at least some people, have learned about jazz and how the learning is developed. The focus will be on one jazz saxophonist from Peterborough who has played for many years in many different kinds of groups, including being part of a big band on a cruise ship. Let's hear from Sean Hulley, responding to a question I asked him about the early days of jazz and how it was so different from today, where it's also become an elite Art form. Well, music was more ubiquitous, I suppose. In in the early days, it was everywhere. People were playing it, and uh, and with the the marching bands in New Orleans, and uh, all this stuff started to come together in New Orleans, and uh, jazz was uh, played. Uh, well, it, it started with playing popular songs, and then the improvisation started to develop out of the popular songs. And at first they were just, uh, the early Dixieland groups, they were just improvising on a melody. They, they weren't, they were thinking more horizontally as a melody. But like when the saints, do 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 And they would go, do 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 so they would embellish it a little bit rather than playing do 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 and then and then uh, these Dixieland bands had uh, multiple instruments multiple melody instruments and rather than having every instrument trying to play the melody that usually it was relegated to the the trumpet and uh, and uh, a, a typical Dixieland outfit that it all it was very different in the early days but you'd have a clarinet playing a, a high contrapuntal part to the trumpet and filling in in the trombone would be playing uh, um, bass kind of parts but but really the bass part was relegated to a tuba or a baritone saxophone um, so there were uh, so there were all these different melodies going on at the same time to create that sound, and then the drums were keeping the beat, of course. Um, another another bass instrument was off sometimes the uh, string bass, but it didn't really have the volume of a tuba or a baritone sax, so it kind of evolved into a horn band until ele electronic amplification came along um, sometime later in the 30s, I think, mm -hmm. 30s or 40s. So uh, at the beginning, uh, so so at the beginning, uh, the, these guys were um, playing off the melody. What you are listening to in the background right now is King Oliver's recording of his own composition, West End Blues, from June eleventh, nineteen twenty-eight. And as Sean says, while it was very focused on playing the melody, even in that very primitive form, it would often play around the melody, offending people who just wanted to hear the melody played straight. So perhaps some of that divide was already created, but it was primarily dance music, and as long as people could dance to it, it was popular. Musicians, though, being a creative breed, are always ready to go to that next step. And with jazz, it came fast. 
just to illustrate how fast I'm going to play that same tune as performed seven days later, June 28th, 1928, by Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. Notice how he has taken it even further, mostly in terms of the rhythmic variations and the sophistication of the syncopation. This one features Earl Hines on piano, clarinetist Jimmy Strong, trombonist Fred Robinson, banjoist Nancy Carr, and drummer Zutty Singleton on hand cymbals. Note the incredible difference 17 days can make in the history of jazz. The rhythmic freedom of Louis Armstrong's opening cadenza is one of the defining moments of jazz and is studied by jazz students all over the world as an essential introduction to the genre. Here it is.
So I asked Sean what he saw as the next big change in jazz. There's no like exact time of when things change, of course. They change over gradually. But um, the next uh, approach was probably the, the, the most defined piece would be Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul, where he started to think more vertically with, with the chords rather than thinking of a, of a melody going horizontally. I always think of chords as being vertical and melodies as being horizontal. So, so uh, Coleman Hawkins, um, if he was to play, um, I've got the piano here, but I'm just gonna do a, a simple C chord, okay? Just to, so um, rather than thinking like a scale, tones of, of C, E, and G, rather than thinking of a scale. Okay, so so Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul, uh, uh, well, Coleman Hawkins, basically, he was, uh, and there's a, 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 a term coined for it called change running. Change running. Change running. So he would look at the chords, or think of the chords, uh, I'm not sure if he read or not, but um, he would think of the, the chord progression and play around that chord progression. And, and that led into um, bebop later on when Charlie Parker um, um, made that even more complex by using the upper extensions more like that, using the whole, whole frame of the, um, of the chord rather than just a, a simple uh, one, three, five, maybe seven or seven, like that. So um, it evolved uh, into bop from there, and and then the tendency was to think more, more vertically. Here is that famous Coleman Hawkins interpretation of body and soul, where jazz begins to go vertical rather than horizontal, from 1939. Thank you. 
So why did the music become so complicated? And by understanding what's going on, can jazz become again a more popular art form? Well, it seems the jury is out on that one. While we don't have to understand all the theory and figure out everything that jazz musicians are playing, it probably helps our appreciation to at least have some understanding of what is going on. Sean Hulley gives a pretty good explanation here, I think, and it helps us to appreciate that jazz musicians didn't just make all this stuff up out of the blue. It actually can be seen as one of the most natural forms of music, even if it isn't simple. Music was originally based on sort of a scale, Mm-hmm. Now, and, and, you know, scale usually based on a key, mm-hmm. it's almost like the key becomes barely relevant, at least in the individual chord. Uh, oh, oh, the, oh, the key is, is there, but what, I'm, what we're doing is we're creating uh, a chord based on the harmonic overtone series. So, so the, if we have a, a C, there, there is a whole um, variety of notes that are in that that one note that create the texture of that note or that sound. So so if we have this, we call this the fundamental. It's also this is in here, and then the fifth, and then the root again. Now the third appears, and that's all in this one note. And then the fifth again, and now the uh, the seventh appears here and then at this point the the notes becoming start becoming smaller and smaller and then it go uh, and then it goes up into the uh, uh, into the higher range but all that in that one note I'm just gonna Sean then explains something that's always confused me. Where do those jazz notes and bebop come from, as they seem different from what we think of in terms of the basic major key or minor key scale? What you're talking about, it's something that's almost based on physics, isn't it? Oh, definitely physics. So, it all goes back to Pythagoras, right. and when he was dis- uh, determining the ratios of, uh, of a fifth and a fourth. I don't know the mathematics behind it. But uh, all that was uh, done, and to get the. Uh, however, the modern piano has um, uh, it, it's been altered. It's the, the intervals have been squished together so that we can play in all twelve keys. Did say Coleman Hawkins yes. or later Charlie Parker? Do yeah. you think they knew this? I mean, how did they discover all those things? Um, so I don't know if they they knew this or not. Uh, I, I believe they did. Um, yeah, I believe they did because they're horn players and they, uh, and you can do those, you, you, I could ac- accent all those things on my horn too. Um, there, there were, uh, that brings into the, uh, up the topic of schooled musicians versus unschooled musicians. The musicians who learn to play by ear, like Charlie Parker, but then you have the Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie, who were schooled, and and uh, and Parker learned a lot from from Dizzy and Miles because of their academic schooling. But Parker w- worked 
uh, exclusively by ear. He wasn't uh, schooled a at all. So he heard all this stuff in, it, in his head to bring that uh, to light. Um, perhaps a good good song to identify that would be um, Scrapple from the Apple okay. by, uh, by Charlie Parker. From 1948, here is Charlie Parker with Scrapple from the Apple. Features Charlie Parker on sax, Miles Davis trumpet, Duke Jordan piano, Tommy Potter bass, and Max Roach on drums. Sean mentioned to me that this particular tune, Scrapple from the Apple, is an example of a phenomenon in jazz called a contrafact. This is where a composer will take the chord sequence from a tune and write a totally new melody around it. That tune we just heard was taken from Fats Waller's Honeysuckle Rose, composed in 1929 with its common 2-5-1 progression. Let's hear some of Honeysuckle Rose and see if you can hear its connection with that tune we just heard, Scrapple from the Apple, but just for variety's sake, and to throw in a more Canadian, contemporary, and feminine touch into the program, I'm going to play a version by, Mon by Montreal jazz singer Susie Arioli, Honeysuckle Rose. Every 
every honeybee is filled with jealousy when they see you out with me. I don't blame them, goodness knows. Honeysuckle rose. When you're passing by, the flowers droop inside. I know the reason why you're much sweeter, heaven knows. Honeysuckle rose. Don't buy sugar. You just touch my cup. You're my sugar. So sweet when we stir it up. When I'm taking sips from your tasty lips, the honey fairly drips. Your confection, goodness knows, honeysuckle rose. From your tasty lips, the honey fairly drips. You are confection, goodness knows. Honeysuckle rose. Montreal's Susie Arioli. This is Discovering Jazz coming from the studios of Trent Radio. My name's Larry Sademan, and today's guest is Sean Hulley. How did you discover jazz? Well, I learned about. Well, I, I grew up in, here in Peterborough, and in the seventies. And, and 80s, so I, I wasn't exposed to it around here. Um, uh, I, I started out with, uh, with hearing rock and, and country music mostly, and 
and my parents had, they were, they were great generations, so I heard a lot of their music, um, more of the um, more popular stuff. My intro to jazz was per perhaps in high school when I was in a, a Dixieland band, and I played, I played bass, but I wasn't improvising bass lines at that point. I was, I was just reading off a chart. So just reading off music at that point, would you say that you were playing jazz? Oh, oh that's a really, really good question. Um, well, we were, we were playing the style of jazz, but it, it wasn't, none of us were improvising, per se. We were, we were playing uh, notes that were transcribed, so it sounded like jazz. We're in the learning process, so I, I think that jazz comes a little bit later when when you get to learn improv and become more comfortable. Also in high school, I was in the jazz band, and that's where I was introduced to Birdland by by Wayne Shorter, and that was my real probably my first connection to that. And I I was playing tenor saxophone in that group, and and the arrangement we had had the written out solo that was on the album. And I, I practiced that. It, it's only an eight-bar bar solo or something. It's very chromatic. Birdland, which we're hearing in the background, was a tribute to a New York City jazz club written by Joe Zawinul for the group Weather Report, released on the 1977 album Heavy Weather. Joe Zawinul on Rhodes Electric Piano, Jaco Pastorius on fretless bass and bandocello, Alex Acuna on drums, and Wayne Shorter on tenor sax. And we're going to give a listen to that eight bars of saxophone excitement that Sean was so inspired to learn. Assuming that at some point uh, you went from playing a written out solo to doing something a little bit more with it or yeah, with the music. Yeah, well, well also uh, in terms of improv, I also, after, just after high school, I was in an R&B band uh, around here. And, uh, and so I, I did play a little bit of, of improv in that group. It was just in the rock or R&B context though. But it's still improv. And um, I still had a long way to go at, at that point. I then asked Sean what inspired him to take his art further and eventually decide to study jazz at Humber College. I had no, at the time, no, uh, did, not ambition, but no intention, I will say intention, no intention to go further. Uh, but I was living in London, Ontario at the time, and uh, I, I had I just had intentions to go into like music publishing. That's where I thought I I uh, I was kind of my my playing was kind of like so so, and I knew that. So uh, I thought I'd try to go into publishing, and I bought this this Mac uh, Mac Classic computer. Do you remember those with the just a little tiny screen? And I thought I'm going to start a music desktop publishing thing. So that's where, I'm, and then uh, we, I went away for Thanksgiving weekend, and we came back, and our apartment, our townhouse had been broken into, lost pretty much everything. Lost my my saxophone, my computer, 
And I thought, all this work, and just to be taken away like that, that's where I decided, oh, well, I'm going to Humber College. I'm going to get, take whatever insurance money I get, buy a saxophone. And I'm going to buy a tenor this time, because I had an alto saxophone. And just restart. And that's, that's my story for going to Humber College. So what was the actual calling? Jazz kind of had a calling for me, because it was a way of uh, growth. It was a vehicle to growth for me. Let's hear some of that growth from Sean Hulley in a CD that he made in 2015. This tune was written by Federico Pontani. It's called Life, and it features the writer on guitar, Royce Williamson on trumpet, Curtis Cronkite on drums, David Frank bass, and Sean Hulley on tenor sax.
Sean Holly on tenor saxophone from his EP called What The? That's Life, written by Federico Pontani. Today, Sean Holly is the guest on Discovering Jazz, talking about how he learned jazz and learned about jazz. Let's hear more from him and how his experience at Humber College introduced him to the next step in his jazz learning. I studied with uh, Brian Lillis the first year, and he's the fellow who introduced me to Hank Mobley because he said he's uh, Hank Mobley is perhaps the most uh, uh, one of the most pure inside jazz players um, uh, around who, and where I could learn to swing and again I was started with learning transcriptions of Hank Mobley's solo and it's off uh, this album called Soul Station and it was actually this was actually the first CD that I actually ever purchased because CDs are new, ah. and um, and so probably a good track to play. I from played this. Dig This actually already. Oh yeah, on the show. Yeah. Well, perhaps uh, Remember. Okay. You could play Remember because that was the first transcription I worked on, and I I sat in the practice room with my little portable CD player with headphones in, and I would try to play along with Hank Mobley and 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 try to absorb his his uh, essence for jazz and I did that with with him I did that with Joe Henderson uh, Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt from the Soul Station album of 1960 here is Hank Mobley with Irving Berlin's Remember <laughs> Thank you. 
I worked on that transcription of uh, Remember as well as other, uh, um, I, and I also worked on Soul Station. I transcribed the solo myself. That was the next step for me, was listening to a solo and writing it down. Because that, it's more valuable to do that, to go through the process of bringing this this song in your the solo in your ear, and then writing it to the tran to the paper yourself, rather than doing something where the work has all been done for you. Because it's it's a more involved process. It's harder, but you really do get more out of it in terms of developing your ear. I had more questions for Sean about how he works up a solo. I've often wondered how much of the jazz master's solos are improvised on the spot and how often it's something they've played many a time. When you sort of work up a solo, mm -hmm. how different is it each time you do it? Like how much of it becomes improvised and how much of it becomes something from memory? Um, that... That's a good good question. I think it really depends on how I'm feeling that day and how how much I've been playing in general. If I'm playing a lot, there's at, um, in a in a period of time, there's more more a better chance that I'll come up with something a lot more original. If I haven't been playing for a while and I'm just kind of stepping up cold at a jam or something it's more likely I'm going to fall back on, on stuff that I know, riffs that I know, uh, something to get me started. Because I always, I always need something to get me started. Whether uh, I think, okay, I'm going to start my solo on this note <laughs> and and see where I go from here. That's, uh, Or I might try to channel somebody, one of these fellows that I've... I'm going to try to play like Sonny Rollins. It doesn't matter if I sound like him, I'm going to try to play like him. Or I'm going to try to play like Joe Henderson. It's a, it's kind of like trying to channel channel another artist oh. into your playing. and kind of, or, or I'm going to try to play like Charlie Parker. Not that I'm going to succeed, but um, the, the attempt that it will kind of shape the, the intention of the solo. It's so weird trying to think about my thought process when I'm... Uh, uh, when I'm not actually doing it, because there there are so many variables. Uh, often I'll just look at the chord, I'll look at the key, look at the scale, think about the melody a little bit, and and start to play. <laughs> and uh, but I I do think I do think look at the chord symbols a lot. I'm that kind of a, a player where I, I'm looking at the harmony, and thinking about what notes will work over, and and where the the song is going. So I make the right note choices. So um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking chords, and I'm thinking scales, and then and then if I get that kind of absorbed with it, um, I can kind of transcend all that and and play. That doesn't happen with me very much, but it has a few times. Must be pretty amazing when it does. <laughs> yeah, it, you feel like completely liberated. I mentioned at the beginning of the program a concern about jazz becoming an elite art form, yet it requires so much skill and so much understanding that maybe it's hard for a jazz artist to relate to what people who don't have the same understanding want. I asked Sean about that in terms of finding that balance between accessibility and creativity. You always have to try to um, ideally uh, relate, uh, 
play stuff that the audience can relate to, uh, yet um, yet inform them a little bit as well, like to try to stretch their ears. When I was playing with my uh, my jazz group around town here, I I tried to do that a little bit. I would play um, very accessible songs, and then but I would also do a couple that were a little bit more challenging. Probably one notable one is um, Serenity by Joe Henderson, which I, um, and I don't think the other fellows in the band like playing it because it was so hard at the time. But um, to me, it was a, it was a good, it was a great melody. The The form was unusual and it, it is a little bit challenging to play. Well, Sean made me very curious about Joe Henderson and that tune, Serenity. I looked for it, found it, now I'm going to play it. This way all of you listening can discover it with me. A nice tie-in to the theme of this Discovering Jazz program. Thank you. 
From 1964, Joe Henderson with Serenity. Features Joe Henderson on tenor sax, Kenny Dorham on trumpet, McCoy Tyner on piano, Richard Davis bass, and drummer Elvin Jones. We've been talking with saxophonist, guitarist, and singer Sean Hulley. More recently, Sean has begun focusing on playing his guitar and singing. I heard him do a terrific version of Paul Simon's Something So Right at the Black Horse. I asked him about that. I came to this decision in 2015, a couple years ago that I needed to work more as as a musician and I I needed to be in uh, more control of of my career uh, rather than being a side uh, musician and I love being a side musician but it's it makes it uh, you're, I'm pulled in all of these different directions sometimes I'd be asked to play with a, a R&B band which is great and all these things are great and then the, the next uh, and then the next gig might be with a Latin band the next gig might with, be with a doo-wop band and there's all this music you have to keep track of and 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 change gears and and sometimes clarinet with a, a Dixieland band um, or or uh, or doing a musical theater where I'm sitting in the pit I love all that stuff but it's just too taxing. So um, my solution was to try to develop one thing that I could do well and be in control. And so I worked on my guitar and I bought a a loop pedal. So um, it's also called a phrase sampler. And the idea was that I would play and sing and also incorporate my woodwind instruments my soprano saxophone and my flute into one thing how about a clip of sean using that loop pedal i love you just the way you Well, we've heard a lot about the passion Sean has for his music and played some of the music that inspired that passion. But being a working musician, it's not all inspiration. Sometimes you have to do your best even when you're not inspired. You can't get bored. Uh, it, even if a song you hate. Like, I, when I was on the cruise ship, I played In the Mood, uh, was it four times a week for a year? do 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 da can you imagine playing that four times a week for a year? How do you and, stay and, in the mood? And you have to, <laughs> you have to play, play it with groove, or else it's, it's not going to come across. You have to learn to play stuff that you don't like. <laughs> that's that's that sometimes happens. You have a little bit more liberty when you have your own thing, and you're just playing in a small club, and nobody, you know, it's there. The, there aren't really high, very high stakes, but. Um, you you have to constantly like uh, convey that what people expect whether you like the music or not and if you don't if you're not suited for that type of music you shouldn't be playing it really uh, so you actually have to like it at least in that moment that you're yes playing it. yes you have to 
You have to make it work. Well, I like In the Mood, but playing it four times a week for a year might prove a challenge. So we'll only play it once in this program, which we're doing right now, finishing off things. But I want to thank Sean Hulley for sharing his journey about how he learned about jazz. And hopefully we've all learned something in the process. I know I have. This is Discovering Jazz, broadcast to the studios of CFFFF Trent Radio in Peterborough. If you are listening to this program on the air and want to hear it again, plus my other Discovering Jazz programs, you can hear it through Googling Discovering Jazz Peterborough Independent Podcasters or through iTunes Podcasts. Next week, more autumn acquisitions, records, and CDs that I've picked up since September. Bye for now.